right, it's Dr. K. And here. Valerie J. And Jasmine. And welcome to Black Women Voices. Hello, and welcome back to Black Women Voices, episode 11. This episode, we have Miss Natalie Gillard as our special guest. During her undergraduate experience, Natalie Gillard found that support for individuals from diverse backgrounds was rather limited. The latter ignited her desire to pursue a self-designed graduate study in race and ethnic relations, as well as diverse professional opportunities. Natalie has held various inclusion roles over her 12-year career, most recently serving as Stevenson University's Assistant Vice President for Multicultural Experience. Natalie is the creator of Factuality, a facilitated dialogue, crash course, and board game all in one that explores structural inequality based on national statistics in America. Factuality has supported the diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives of Fortune 500 company Lockheed Martin, Bloomberg Bureau of National Affairs, the College Board, the American Heart Association, the Maryland Commission on Civil Rights, Bill Gates Millennium Scholars, and the University of Arizona, where author and civil rights activist Bell Hooks participated. Factuality has received over 6,000 participants and has been featured in Baltimore Magazine, the Afro-American newspaper, Boston Voyager, and is listed in the Kellogg Foundation's Racial and Equity Resource Guide. It is also listed in the Baltimore Jewish Times and most recently became an ice cream flavor through the partnership with social justice ice cream brand, Taharka Brothers. Welcome to episode 11 of Black Women Voices, where we are joined today by our awesome three co-hosts, as well as our special guest, Miss Natalie Gillard. And we are going to talk about senior level leadership today and Black women in that space. And so I am excited, Miss Natalie, welcome to the podcast. And we are excited to have this conversation with you today. Thank you for having me. I've been really looking forward to this as a former former senior leader and just really excited about the opportunity to have a very authentic conversation about what my experiences were like. Well, awesome. So I'll, I'll start us off by just asking, what does it mean to be a Black woman in leadership, especially in this higher ed space? I think that it... To be, to be a black woman in senior leadership in higher ed, it means that you have to be both brilliant and resilient at all times. So brilliant because you have to be credentialed in order to earn that seat at the table. And even when you are brilliant, sometimes you still don't get that seat and resilient because once you get to that seat, what you have to go through to even occupy that space just will take so much out of you in comparison to other colleagues that don't look like you, unfortunately. Yeah. Wow. That's good. Mm -hmm. Brilliant and resilient. Hmm. Those are some good terms. Mm -hmm. That's a t-shirt. Yes. (laughs) Let's do it. Let's make a t-shirt. But it's definitely something that that I I realized and and it hit me like a ton of bricks when I kept encountering things. Like I'm looking at what is expected of me the credentials for a position and I get to the table and I'm meeting people that don't look like me that have 
bachelor's degrees that are sharing things Ooh. that aren't really coming full circle and and the very evident medi mediocrity and here I am battling the duality of my most apparent identity markers and needing resilience just to just to occupy and share that space because I feel so different despite being so credentialed and 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 having a decade of experience to do the work that is being required of me. Mm, that's real. Um, wow. Whew, that was a heavy one. That took me back. Um, especially, especially when you talk about being at the table, senior leadership, and you think about the credentials. And it's like, as Black women, we have to have every credential there is to have just to even be at the basic level of what they need us to be at the table. Yeah, and that happens at so many different parts of our careers. And I am speaking from my experience, but at the same time, I'm coupling it with what I know to be true about other women who look like me that I get to meet all over this country with the work I get to do now. And even from my first job, and I share this story all the time, I was three months shy of completing a master's degree and working at a resident, working as a resident director at a small school in Boston, see the vacancy for a director of student leadership and diversity programs. I was the resident director offering support to the Alana or multicultural group. And I was focusing on race and ethnic studies. And so I had the background. And when I applied for that director position, I was told I wasn't qualified, but I was invited to sit in on a failed search. And then the title was changed from Director of Student Leadership and Diversity Programs to Coordinator for Student Leadership and Diversity Programs. And it was offered to me. What, wait, and I said, we're just wow, just, are you serious? I just need us to pause right there. Because one thing that you said really struck me, and then this is completely out of order probably, but I have, you are not the first person that I have heard, black mm -hmm. professional, who has been told either not to apply to a position and then asked to sit on the search committee. That's trauma. Um, yes. or, or, and or offered a lesser title for the same position. Yes. I, yeah. I, just, I mean, what is that? But the thing is, I share this story all the time, and I and later I'm sure I'll get into why I share this story all the time, and the amount of people that look like me who tell who tell me that that has happened to them as well, and so because the end, it's really because of the whole story. So the the second part of the story is that they changed that title, they offered it to me. So we're looking at other parts of my identity being a first gen student coming from an immigrant family. My dad is from South Carolina, my mom is from Jamaica, but we largely grew up with my mom's family. So we have this limited understanding and so I take the position. And then I begin reporting to a white woman, younger than me, with a bachelor's degree who got promoted to assistant dean, despite being told I would have my title revisited once I completed my master's, which was only three months away. And then she left the institution and I ran that office as a coordinator until year four, which has a direct impact on what I can bring home for my income and my overall trajectory in the field. And you know, all of you know at this point in your career, when you come into that search committee and they're looking at something, it's like, oh, why do you have that gap? Or why weren't you able to have traction? And why, why, why? 
Well, I was told I wasn't qualified, yet I was reporting to someone who I had, who I was more credentialed than. And then even though I was told my title would be revisited, it didn't happen until year four. And when it did happen, when my title was shifted, it was because one of my colleagues, Puerto Rican woman, Dr. Wanda Montañez, she was working on a doctorate reporting to a white woman with a bachelor's degree, and she was told she wasn't qualified to be a director. So we realized okay. that it was somewhat oh trending oh at God. our institution. Yeah, oh yes, it happened to me. Wow. And so that's what I say, it requires equal parts of brilliance and, res and resilience, because in order to occupy these spaces, I'm thinking about, I was, I was told I wasn't good enough from when I first got into the field, 2007. And then here I am occupying these spaces that largely don't look like me, but getting in trouble for things that aren't actually making it to HR because I am being assertive or I'm trying to get things done. But largely as women of color, we occupy these multicultural diversity roles, right? So we're in competition with each other to occupy this one seat. Why can't we just be the VP for student life? Why can't we just be the VP for academic affairs? We're largely occupying spaces that serve marginalized groups. And don't get me wrong, I definitely want to offer support there because that's actually something that speaks to, to me. However, why am I not seeing more reflections of me in roles that go beyond serving marginalized populations? And then you get to the table and you have to convene and, and try to figure out the best ways to move things forward and you're up against a variety of mindsets that aren't even speaking in concert with the work that you were brought in to do. Then you have to be, you're forced into being, into resiliency. Right. Well, but that kind of leads me to the question of, because I think we have these conversations of resiliency and I, and I love that brilliance, kind of that dichotomy and brilliance and resilience, but what are, that makes me think about the emotional toll of that. So like, what, <laughs> Are, what, what is the emotional, physical, and or spiritual toll of having to be this brilliant, kind of resilient force? Because it sounds like you're not really able to be human. Like, you have to be the superhuman. Um, kind of makes me think of the book that talks about, you know, like, Black women who are superwomen, but kind of like, we don't really talk about what's the cost of that. So then, what do you see then? Are the, are the emotional, physical, and or spiritual cost to that brilliance and that resilience. At my last place of employment, I created a group to support women of color, and it largely catered to black women. And I was so excited about this group, got little cards made so I can share them around campus to get students engaged because I was partnering with the sole black therapist on campus. So it was a way to offer support to students, partnering with a black therapist to introduce them to therapy and normalizing that type of support. And I got in trouble. The first day of the group, my boss calls me and says, oh, so there was, there was a complaint for your group today. And I said, I'm thinking this group was good. It was so good. And she said, yeah, I had a, I had a complaint. And I said, well, from who? And she says, oh, I don't know. I said, well, let's, let's do a quick process of elimination. So with the group for women of color, so it wasn't a white woman that complained, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Do you think you could change the name so that it, or, or maybe put a little, a little caption that says, all are welcome? I said, well, that will invite men. We have a women's group in the, in the counseling center. Why is, why is that not an issue? We have a football team. Are we going to let cheerleaders 
join. We have a fraternity. We're bringing, we're onboarding fraternities. Are we going to let the sororities co-mingle? So what is the main issue? And that was an ongoing fight for a month. I had to fight for that, to, to have that group to partner. And I even demonstrated that the, the, the universities and colleges, institutions that we benchmarked again, also had those offerings. And I ended up going, I live in Baltimore. I ended up going to this group called Not Without Black Women. And I finally just unloaded and shared all of the racism and bullying I had endured at this last place of employment. And when I left, I felt light. And I could not believe how much I had been carrying unknowingly. So between that book, between that group rather, and routine visits with my therapist, that's what was, uh, that allowed me just to stay right below the surface. I wasn't even at the surface. I couldn't get, a, I couldn't break through that surface because it was such a gloomy time in my life. But relying heavily on, on, on therapy is, and, and a lot of reflecting and, and prayer, but like that, those are the things that had to get me through that time because the, because the, because the circumstances were just that challenging. And in the end, I, I really fought for that group because I had a lot of young women coming to me, teachers making comments about their hair or sliding them in comparison to white counterparts in the classroom. And I was fighting for those young women. And I kept getting in trouble so much so that the vice president for human resources told me that that wasn't in my job description. We ended up having a mediation where I slid my job description across the table. I said, my job description essentially says that I need to assess the community and implement groups accordingly. That's what I did. And she looks me in the eye in front of my boss who says nothing and says, well, then I need to revisit your job description. Wow. Um, oh my gosh. Um, Are you serious? Oh. Mm -hmm. I had a, a, a seven-page exit interview, seven pages, single space, 11-point font. Wow. Outlining, outlining all of the racism and bullying I encountered in only two years. Mm-hmm. And we talk about microaggressions, but the what I'm hearing is just aggression. They're not micro. Mm -hmm. There's nothing little about Mac these. These are macro, mm -hmm. full-on aggressions. Mm -hmm. And and there were there were some micros in there as well too. That same person that threatened to change my job description. One of the other vice presidents. I was, it was my first week at that institution, and I'm helping students check in or figure out where their classes were located in a brand new building that was somewhat hard to navigate. And as he's walking away from the check-in desk, he says, and I'm going to try to mimic his voice. I'm going to preface by saying that he says, keep it real. And I looked around like, I'm at a, I'm at a desk checking students in. Where is the context besides my blackness that would warrant you saying, keep it real. So I complained and I got in trouble. But I heard from other black colleagues that that same vice president started going around to them asking, why was she so offended by keep it real? She said it was a microaggression. Like, why is it a microaggression? There was no context. I'm checking people in at a desk. There's no context for telling me to keep it real besides you not being colorblind and seeing my skin. And she went around to all the black people in her department asking them why that was offensive. But she was the co-chair of the diversity and inclusion committee. Wait a minute. I just, say, I just want to say, I just want to say that before Wait. we started, we're, did, did, did we just talk about the worst ones are the ones who are the woke ones, who's supposed to be the woke mm -hmm. people? 
Let's take a. We need to just take a collective sigh on that one. Right. Just a deep Ooh. breath and let it all oh. the way out. That is. Oh, crazy. You're, you're, we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing. That's not the worst of it, though. Like, I guess mm. let me let me tell you the 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 high. I would I would call this the highlight. But again, seven pages, and and here's another highlight. And then we'll take that collective sigh, and then we can really talk about how do you survive senior leadership because you somewhat feel like you're on puppet strings once you get to that point in your career because of the allegiance you must have to all levels of an institution, especially the top and speaking in concert routinely. And so my boss, we had a meeting with the, with some students from the black student union and they, they, they have an annual fashion show that's not funded properly, so they were asking for for some assistance because I noticed every year they would go negative, and I was trying to bring them full circle with having the funding beforehand, and also trying to instill lessons about checks and balances and credit and things like you just it was just multifaceted for the way I wanted them to raise this money. So they come to the president's office, and we have a meeting, and they barely left the room. And she says, what do they expect for me to give them money to buy fried chicken? And then a few weeks later, she pulls me into a meeting and she says, so you've been talking about how there's racism on campus. Can you give me some examples? What? Did you tell her about the fried chicken? Oh, God. I just sat there. I sat there and I was just like in a daze, like, I mean, I had a, I had the power fist on a flyer and the student put a power fist in a mock-up for a mural in the diversity center. Like, what is that angry fist there for? So I had to take her on a little history, history journey. And I sent her a novel about the, the, the historical meaning of, of the, of the, of the fist and how it has ties to other cultures and, and groups beyond, beyond black people. But, I'm telling you, seven pages. I think I only told you a couple bullet points, but this was seven whole pages because I was at a place in my life where I was so tired of these being the stories that we typically share among each other. When there are too many people, too many me's going through the same thing. And so I'm, I was so grateful for this opportunity because I'm so tired of being silent. My good friend, Ninda Hartz, just came out with a book called The Memo, which tell a story about all the challenges she has encountered as a black woman in her field. And we're in really different fields. And I'm like, why, why can I relate so much to this, to this book by an author that I'm still becoming friends with and realizing in between sitting on this stuff for so long and, and reading that book, I just decided like my voice is really important and I'm going to contribute to this narrative. So yeah. here we are. Whew. I need that sigh. <laughs> now, now we can collect. Have the collection. <laughs> Ooh, I mean, yes, that was heavy. That was that was heavy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a visual, and as you were, as you was telling your story, I felt like I was, like this was a, a lifetime type of movie and or BET movie, whatever kind of uh, or <laughs> own network movie, and I was there, and I'm just like, why is this happening to us? You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I feel emotional. I feel so emotional 
sharing it because this is the most public, but it's something that's just been, right. I, when I obsess over things, I think about these things a lot. And ultimately I can't say I'm grateful because it pushed me into a work ethic that I didn't even know, like the caliber of work I could produce. I did not realize, but it's because I was triggered so much and I was so desperate to leave. And because of the trauma, because I was traumatized, I was too terrified to apply to any comparable position at any institution because I was so worried about my mental health mm. and, 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 and being able to preserve what remained of my san sanity. Yeah. I just couldn't apply to anything because I could not feel a single ounce of what I had encountered again. Wow. That's, you, you know, our last episode, we were talking about navigating white spaces and PWIs. And one of the questions that we asked was, you know, when we navigate these spaces, does it strengthen us or does it hinder us? And, you know, you just mentioned it gave you uh, a different type of work ethic, you know. So, whew. Um, so let me collect myself. <laughs> so given all of that... <laughs> Uh, what what struggles do you do you believe black women face in rising to the top, um, and why 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 do we have those struggles? So I think it begins with well for me I'm thinking about how my career began the fact that I was discredited discounted immediately oh you can't be a director. And so you see things happening around you. There's like some gaslighting involved. So you see these things happening around you with people that you may be more credentialed than or that you have the same credentials as getting promotions, excelling, moving on to bigger and better and greater things, but it's not happening to you. Then you realize that you're more qualified and, it's, and, and, it's, and you're not advancing as well. And so you start to realize that the reasons why your upward mobility is restricted, has nothing to do with, with merit and everything to do with what your, your outward appearance and that becomes your limitation. It's just like, it, it's a major, major blow to your self-esteem, to, to your work ethic when you realize that the lessons that your parents tried to instill, that you have to work twice as hard to be half as good is a real thing or maybe not entirely true because you're still not feeling like everything that you're contributing is actually half as good. So how do you make it to the top? And especially in places, in many instances of these places, we're noticing that a lot of the roles that people who look like you and I occupy are the diversity of multicultural roles. Well, how many of those roles are you gonna have? Right, exactly. And so again, the last institution, I remember looking at the stage at commencement, they would hand select a black person to sit on the stage because that was the only diversity that would be apparent. And so I pushed back and I said, I'm not speaking. I'm not speaking. Oh, well, you need to do the religious offering or whatever. I said, you have, you have faculty that focuses on religion. That's not my expertise. Why do I need to be up there? And I pushed back because I wasn't going to allow my black body to be tokenized in a, hot ass robe and I'm sorry if I couldn't <laughs> say a bad word but I'm not going to be on the stage under those beaming lights tokenized for a couple of hours for two sessions because you don't have anybody else you have a 10 minute offering of something a, a, 
doesn't even make sense why that was a part of the commencement celebration because you don't have enough people of color or black people to go around. I was the sole black person in senior leadership and I felt like I was the sole black person in senior leadership. So when those, when the roles where we are more most inclined to see ourselves have some sort of affiliation trio, diversity, multicultural, starts to make you feel like you can only occupy that space. And then when you have your competition, we're against each other trying to fill that one seat. So it's discouraging. And I think that's why a lot of us aren't in those, those spaces. Wow. Mm. Whew. That, mm. Yeah. This is a lot. This, um, it, it's heavy. So, so let me ask you, you said something. I just want to ask a follow-up question about this because um, as a diversity center director myself, I think one of the things that I look at a lot of people in this space who have been doing this work for like 10 and 20 and 30 years. And I oftentimes wonder, you know, how is it that they can navigate this level of trauma for so long? Like, how can you keep going? And, and, and when I hear you talk about, you know, you're saying like you were traumatized to the point where you don't, you didn't even want to go and have a comparable position at another university. And then I'm looking at these people who are giving me pieces of advice and really solid advice. Now I'm, I'm, I think, how do you do this for decades and years? And so what do you think, how do you think those that came before us and have been doing this and I can't, I don't know if they're all doing it effectively. I'm not saying that because I really don't know. But how, what's that staying power? What do you think that is? Because it's sure, not that's magic. A really great question. That's, a, that's a really good question. And it's something actually I've been, I was talking to my therapist about in our last session. And it has a lot to do with generational differences and what we accept and what we expect but the generational piece, when you intersect that, there are entirely different outcomes. And so the fact that all of us are having this joint conversation that is going to be out there for public consumption is very different if you just bring it to a basic, basic level like familial with your mama and your grandmama where you don't talk about, you know, you don't put, put so-and-so's business out there and we don't talk about X, Y, and Z. That's not where we are anymore. We're in a place now, generationally, where we are airing out our grievances and we need things to be reconciled, or we have all these glossy diversity positions trendy, trending all over the institution. So we're in a place now where those things are being glorified, but there's, there, we, we have them everywhere, but people still don't quite know what to do with them because we're still operating in these roles within the national institution. But I think we're at a place now where people can be more vocal and we have other mo movements that sometimes gain more traction than movements that focus on the black experience. But nevertheless, we do have these movements that are gaining traction that are giving people a voice. So I think the people who have been in the field for 20, 30 years have dealt with these things. And once in a while, I would get a black woman who has been in the field for however long, you know, kind of give me the eye like, yeah, girl, I, I'm definitely going through it but they come from a generation where you don't speak about those things. Whereas for us and even the younger generations are just like, I'm gonna speak about everything. And so I think that's why for us, it's kind of like a, no, you're not doing this to me. I have options versus just being so grateful to have 
and option. Now there is a somewhat of a plethora. And I think that's why we're hearing more about it now because of the generational piece. Mm. So, so earlier you kind of mentioned, um, of course, us as black women, we have to have brilliance and resilience. Um, can you kind of touch on what professional development pieces we as black women need to address before we aspire for the senior level position? Sure. So I love, I always, for, for questions that are similar to this, I always think of Lauren Hill and when she says, how are you going oh, with okay. if you ain't right with them? Yeah. <laughs> how can you not yeah. love her, right? You better drop <laughs> those bars. <laughs> drop the that bars. Line, right? Right? Yeah, come mm -hmm. again. That line. <laughs> so for anyone that asks me, like, how did you find success with this? Or how did you find success with that? It's like, well, do your self-inventory. How are you feeling about you? If you're not feeling good about you, if you're not feeling aligned, if you have to engage in imposter syndrome just to get through your work days every day for however long your academic year is going on, your contract or whatever, there, there's, there's no true success there without the authenticity. And so I feel like for, for engaging in professional development, it's part, I think what we're doing right now is professional development, just mm -hmm. being able to have open and honest dialogue about our lived our shared lived experiences because i'm sure i know I'm, I'm, I'm i've shared some heavy stories but i know we can all see pieces of our own experiences and what i'm sharing just like the way i see pieces of my experience and my friends and my colleagues and my peers it's all the same thing so it's, first and foremost it's how are you taking care of you and i'll probably mention therapy several more times before we before we conclude our time today but that was the most transformational investment where I could go and sit with someone and, that, and, and for people who are super religious, I would always say to them as well too, that if you believe that God gave you skills to do X, Y, and Z, why couldn't God give those skills to a therapist? Like that's their skill. No, and so I think that, hmm? Yeah, that, that was an amen moment. That was awesome. <laughs> I yes. mean, but, but I'm curious, like, I, I know I have my skills and talents. I know that there is, there is something conspiring to offer these to me. So and why can't it be extended in that type of capacity as well, too? So I think before any, any of those offerings around professional development can actually permeate, it's just making sure we're taking care of ourselves. You've got to be in a good place for everything that extends from you to also be successful. Well, and I have a question too, because, you know, even in thinking, you, you said something earlier about even thinking about folks who've done this work, but have been in it for a long time and have maybe said, okay, I've experienced some of that. Like, what do you see kind of with that, with that piece? What do you see is the value of these collaborative movements towards this black black woman resilience towards brilliance like like what what do you see is in that because even in um thinking about the things that you experienced and i'm sure other folks of color saw the things that you were experiencing and whether or not they were too afraid which because there is this self-preservation thing of of not wanting to speak up or even calling you to say hey hey sis i see you like but what do you see is the value in supporting each other as we kind of navigate these spaces, because there also is this idea that there can only be one. 
you know, in when we have these conversations of senior level administration, um, specifically for black women. So like, what do you see as the value in this together, this partnership of coming together? I think just generally speaking, there is comfort in numbers. And despite going through the most devastating atrocities, right? I, I, I truly felt traumatized that I had a friend who was going through the same thing. And I don't want anyone to encounter this in their workplaces or, or beyond otherwise. But because we had, were able to share that space, it just, in a way, knowing that I, it, it feels like a lot of gaslighting, but when you realize that it's not isolated, it's not exclusive to you, there's this camaraderie where you can vent, you could come together, you can strategize, you can figure out how to keep each other uplifted and figure out ways to find your way out, which also creates opportunities for networking through this pain. You're coming, the common bond is the pain, but it's creating these loving relationships. And as we continue to build those relationships, it creates opportunities and avenues to get yourself into a different lane. So I think by being open, by being transparent, and even if, but I, but, and as far as the people who are like watching from afar but not saying anything, like to be really mindful of what other people have going on in their respective lives. Like for instance, there was a woman at my last type of employment who was really going through it, but she was a mom. And so being vocal, she couldn't take the risk of being vocal because she had children to provide for. And so I had a plan in motion to get myself out and do my own thing. So I felt like I knew I was leaving. So I started being vocal, hoping that it would have a trickle down effect to make the experience better for people that look like me because I could sacrifice myself because I already knew I was out of there. And from being super, super vocal, I heard this last commencement, they didn't hand pick the last, one of the last five black people to sit on the stage to diversify the stage party, but I also included that in that seven page exit interview. So by using my voice, my body, I'm coming together with other women to let them know this is not just you, we're all going through it, creating loving relationships with them, but then also trying to leave a little bit of some resi something residual so that they can implement some some sort of well-needed change, even if it's at my own expense, that was fun. Wow. And and so I think with, with that in mind, because you said a, a few things that I was like, it blows me away. Why would Black women want to aspire to senior leadership, right? If it with all of these conditions and all these things that are happening to us, like legit, legit, you know, and maybe this goes hand in hand with like a glass ceiling, but is it really a glass ceiling? Or are we just choosing not to go there? Because as you said, the higher you go, the perception is the more allegiance and alliance to the institution that you will conceivably have to show. You know, I honestly don't know why. And I know we have an, we have an aspiring college president and I'm not trying to deter you but I honestly don't know why we would go for that anymore. I don't. At the same time, I do feel like my experience was really, really bad. So I'm, I'm feeling hopeful that it's not as awful, although I can quickly think of someone who looks like me, who has several examples of a really awful experience, but I don't know anymore because it is tremendously isolating at the top because you are one of very few 
or the sole person at that level, largely in a role that is often misunderstood nationwide. Yeah. And then you still have to have the allegiance while you're hearing all of the grumbles about the racism and all the injustices occurring on campus. And you can't do anything because you need to try to keep the peace to try to move the needle a little bit, which means that you have to leave so many things unresolved. So I don't know anymore. And, but I do see that entrepreneurship for black women is on the rise. And so perhaps becoming senior leaders at our own institutions and, and organizations might, might be the way because there is a shift that that will be required in order for us to truly be successful. And being successful also means our health, all aspects of our health. Like we need to be healthy in these roles. And right now that doesn't really seem possible because of a lot of things that we, like largely at an institution, we're not ready to face and own. Yeah, and, and you're right. There, there are a lot more and more um, black women you know, becoming entrepreneurs. And I saw something on Facebook about we are the the fastest growing entrepreneurs of black women. You know, and that that is mm -hmm. dope. It's, it's like, it is. It's, it's super dope. I, I guess maybe my worry, maybe not worry. I think that's a heavy word. But the concern that I have is, you know, well, first of all, the institutions are really not ready to support black women, right? That institution has to be prepared to support any black person. Um, but of course, we're on the topic of black women in those roles. And, and especially at predominantly white institutions, if we are not supporting, I know that there are students that are going to have to go to these institutions. And then that support is not available. And so it's, 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 you know, we, we talk some about the idea of racial uplift in terms of our work and what we do in our jobs. And, you know, the thought of, you know, that, that part that, that becoming slimmer, it's slimmer on both sides. And I'm talking about the student affairs side and the faculty side where we don't have a lot of black provosts or going up into mm -hmm. those roles or tenure level faculty and just stopping maybe at one, the, the associate level and not going up, you know, I, I worry, my concern is the residual impact on students who will go through college and have to feel the impact of that, of only having that woman that you were talking about at your university that probably exists at a lot of universities out here. You know, what is the impact to our future education system and those who have to participate in it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's, that's for everybody, that's right? So we can all kind of chime in probably. And, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know, from the thought, you know, I, I have thoughts to come in mind randomly, but it's like, it's the title worth the process. Is it? Because that, that, that's what it is, the, the title. I mean, we, we, we're going to do the work regardless. We're already doing it in any position that we're in, but it's the title worth the process. No, yes. No. Yes, and here's why. <laughs> and, and, and this is why it's worth it. This is just me. It's worth it because we that is ha that has been our as black women that has been who we are as a tradition, and that's why we don't get paid as much 
It impacts our generational wealth and the earning abilities of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. of us and our families because we are content with the title, but, but with the title comes the money, comes the promotion, mm -hmm. and that's what we need in order to take stuff to the next level, right? Yeah, because we like, can do the work. Come. Other people can buy vacation <laughs> homes and live their best life. Right all around the country, and we talking about we can't take a vacation and we sick and we sit at our desk trying to help people mm -hmm. because we're content with being the worker bees and the the really the helping and we'll do the work without the title. No, I want I want both. It's a but is it, for me. But is it so much the contentment or is it the the uncertainty of can I really demand this time? Can I really demand that uh, I I deserve? Whether that is more space, whether that is I, I um, can can I really can I really command my self care? Can I can I really do that? Because I think so much of that, you know, okay, I'll take that on, I'll take that on, and whether that is, you know, I don't know if my job is, you know, like they they're gonna want me to do this, and so maybe I just need to do this to keep my job, or even to just seem like I'm happy for it. I, I, I see that as well. So I, I don't know if it's, I feel like it's that and when we think about, mm -hmm. is it worth, is it worth that? Because I think sometimes we do it just at a lack of, well, if I don't, then what's going to happen? Or who will do yeah. it? Or who will do it? Because I think yeah. so, so much of kind of going back to what you said, Ann, in that we know that we're in these positions and our students of color are looking for us because there may just be the one. You are the one person in your whole division that is a black woman you are the one person in you know whatever that they are looking for and because of that it's not only your work but it's work on top of that because all students of color and folks of color are coming for you to serve on each and everybody's committee and be on a stage you know to serve and and hooding all all of this because you're that and so I also think there has there's something to be said about being scared to demand that I, I know I can't do that because I'm trying to protect myself too. Natalie, you want to chime in? You look deep in. I, I'm I'm thinking. I'm uh, yeah. I'm deep in thought. I, I think that I think that those comments are so true. We we come in for one role, and that role quickly becomes so tremendously multifaceted when you see all these little brown babies coming in and airing out all the awful things that are happening to them on campus. And because you are that sole person, you get called in to do this. You get called in to do this wide variety of things that allows you to be in the office at 8.23 on a Friday. You know, it's like the, the job is so massive, but the, but the pay does not equate with the work that's being rendered. And so it puts you in this predicament where you, you have these heartfelt conversations and you want to give and give and give, but what you're up against. And I, I didn't mind doing that work. I didn't mind having those conversations. That was some really important work because I, I know what it's like to not see anyone that looks like you. I, didn't, I don't think I had my first black teacher, professor, anything until halfway through college. And I think I only had one black professor in college, but one black teacher slash professor professor from kindergarten to my graduation so I'm largely not seeing people that look like me and so now that now that I see what it is like to even maintain that space and just try to be effective but then you have all these barriers that are routinely placed against placed upon you it's kind of hard to it's kind of it, I just felt really stuck and 
I know what I'm good at and I, I know what I have the capacity to do. And I talk about race and like largely about race issues every single day. And some people are like, Oh my gosh, how can you have that conversation? Because that's, that's what I'm built for. So I think that's the way that it will get done is having an understanding of what you're, where you are strong and what you have the capacity to take on. And for me, going up against an administration that let me feel like I was a placeholder, I didn't have the, I no longer had the capacity for that. But I do believe that there are people who do, but I, I just didn't. Yeah. And to be honest, you know, I know there's been a lot of conversations lately about what your salaries are. So I'm gonna share what my salary was too. So to encounter, Seven pages worth of bullying and racism. Seven pages, single space, 11.5. Still need to go there because I, I wrote a whole lot in, in that exit interview, which I've never done before. But it was, it was really imperative that they understood that I was not leaving to go and run my own business. I was leaving the racism and bullying. First and foremost. Second, I wanted to pursue my own work. But first and foremost, I was walking away and taking a risk because I was the, the bullying and racism was totally depleted me and working 50, 60 hours a week, the expectation to do the early mornings and the late nights and the weekends for with over a decade of experience and a master's degree for $65,000 a year was just not making the cut. Mm -mm. No. Yeah. <laughs> And that's what you need. You said, no, you, you said, you said it exactly right. And people have, I've heard it in terms of that, like y'all don't pay me enough for all that you expect me to do, that you ask me to do. And that, that you put I me through. Do, do. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, when I was factoring all of the hours and then trying to put, put, a, num a numerical amount to the agony, it's definitely not worth nobody's $65,000 a year plus two hours of commuting every day in traffic. It wasn't worth it. Two hours? Two hours? It wasn't worth it. Oh, no. <laughs> what? That's one thing is that you cannot, you cannot, even with a title and the experience, I just don't feel like you can put a price on sanity. You, can. you cannot put a price on your peace. You cannot put a price on your sanity. Um, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I got to pay my therapist some of, some of this out of the 65. Y'all don't want to do I need a, a therapist stipend. I, I honestly do think that one, we had talked about professional development, but one of those pieces that we should be asking for is we should be asking for funds for not just our professional development should include like that should be a part of it and mm -hmm. we should be able to say we need professional development funds to address the the mental health issues that that we incur because of being in this toxic environment that you allow to persist you probably don't yeah. want to say it like that because that sounds like not somebody <laughs> and senior level leadership but but that's but that, but that's that why, like why but why can't we say that? Why do we have to quell all of these organic emotions? Why can't I be able to express all different types of emotions? 
Why can't I be angry when you're doing things that warrant anger? Like, why? Why do I have to suppress these very valid emotions? I feel like you can be angry. I feel like as we are seeing in, in the news that black administrators who do express and who have done these things, that your your job is essential, can essentially be at risk. Your entire job yeah. can be at risk. And so I think yeah. I think that's that's the one thing in terms of like professional development. I have will they'll pay like eight, ten thousand dollars for you to become part of these special cohorts of, of these like really elite training professional development programs without really um well and also like some sort some sort of a communications uh coach to help you learn how to communicate these things because when we say it how we say it amongst us in this group and what's going to be on this podcast we i i see the very real implications of being able to really speak it how i would like to speak it yeah well and so many folks don't really have that transparency until there's some type of job security and even when we think there's job security there actually is not job security because Right. Tenure. Mm -hmm. Tenure doesn't always protect you. Right. And so but I also think I'm, I mean, I'm thinking back to um, kind of like eloquent rage. If we, you know, look at that that book and, 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 and using anger in in a way, but also whether that's through publishing, there's there's ways to do it. But I also think to your point and we can really look at so many examples where folks transparency, like too much transparency puts us in spaces that your job can literally be taken away. And so I think there's this kind of dance that we do, even kind of through the podcast and, and the conversations that we have, there's this mm -hmm. dance, like how honest is, how honest can we be? What can we say? What can we not say? And, and also that second guessing that also happens because that's a real, it's a real issue. This is so unfair. I'm upset. I just, I, how do, okay, how can I put it in words? How do we work at institutions where, where students are, are on our campuses and, and we're supposed to help them navigate four, five, however long they're there, years to learn about themselves, to be vocal, to express who they are, and then go into a workplace or a workforce that says, nope, those last four years was just that, you can't come here and be who you wanna be here. It's just so, and then to tap, to add on to that being black and then being a black woman, oh, it's just frustrating. Yeah. And I mean, we, I know we need to see more black women in these leadership roles um, because we are brilliant, um, because we do, we do deserve those spots. Um, but then when you think about the process and then how, bits and pieces of your story, Natalie, you know, it's a piece of someone else's story, another black woman's story. And it's like, how do we get there? And then when we get there, what do we do to write the narrative or, or rewrite the narrative so that the stories that we're telling become less and less for those that come after us? Well, honestly, I, that's the reason why there were many reasons why I left the, my place of employment, but one of the main reasons 
was the bullying and racism. But then another one is that I, I, I couldn't, I realized that my hands were tied. It felt like they were in shackles. I knew that the most impactful work wouldn't be allowed. And I could continue to keep myself in distress by trying to make a shift, but I knew that I didn't have enough buy-in and I was so wiped out and exhausted from how poorly I had been treated that it only made sense to wave the white flag. And that was because I realized the importance of putting myself first and, 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 and prioritizing my health and overall well-being and realizing that that was a battle that I had to opt out of on that campus because I had identified a way that would allow me to be even more impactful on my own. And so you just have to like, you know, you have to pick and choose your battles. And I really fought and it just got to a place where I couldn't answer why I was fighting anymore. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, Natalie, can you, I, can you talk about the work that you're doing now? Cause I, I would like to give you, I would like to hear and kind of how that, if there is a tie in between the positions that you've had and the work that you that you've done and, and, and really what you're doing now. Sure. So before I even say that, I want to, I also want to add how I got there because there's, there's, there's so much to gain from these experiences, depending on how you choose to channel your frustrations. And after being told I couldn't run a woman of color support group and that it wasn't in my job description, I came home one day mad <laughs> which was pretty common and and disappointed when I realized my dream job was actually a whole entire recurring nightmare. I had these postcards that I had printed for a, a game that I developed that would teach people about structural inequality. And I came home and because I was familiar with higher education, I knew how to navigate those directories. And I said, what if I just start mailing these out? And I started pulling off the names, email addresses, addresses of everyone I thought would be interested or might consider a diversity training in my type of delivery. And I sent out thousands of postcards and sent out thousands of emails. And I contacted people from every single college and university in the state of Massachusetts, Maryland, Philadelphia, Delaware, California, Virginia, and I mailed all those cards out. I emailed all that information out and slowly started getting some traction to develop a board game that would teach people about structural inequality through simulation. So it draws from US data sets and offers a fact-based simulation of how structural inequality plays out starting from the origins of redlining, which we're largely seeing challenges in places nationwide that were originally redlined. And so I can talk about the challenges that women of color face, black women face by exploring racial pay gaps. I could talk about the challenges that we face in health by exploring prescription medication disparities and what's happening around infant mortality. So I can talk about the issues that are largely impacting us still, but just in my own delivery and I still get access to higher ed, which it's still a really important field to me. And so 
I realized after all that work on the admin side that I actually wanted to teach. And then I was really horrified because I don't have a PhD yet. And, and yes. I, yeah, I yes. took classes, but, um, but yeah. And so I was horrified when I came to that realization, but realized I would rather teach. I'd rather have a captive audience where I could contribute in my own way and, and start to dismantle because it's helping people realize the missteps around hiring practices, around what the leadership leadership teams look like by offering a historical overview of the challenges that that people have faced in this country, especially black people. You dope. Like you really dope. Like that's mm -hmm. dopeness. <laughs> Turning your uh what they say turning your pain into something um, mm -hmm. more appealing to you um, and not dwelling on it, you know, it's sure. A, absolutely. The blessing in it all. Um, mm -hmm. <sighs> oh, I, just, I just, I just want to give you a hug. <laughs> I would take that. <laughs> Which means a lot because I don't like to I don't like to be touched, so I don't like to really give hugs. So let me forget. That's okay. Because because you know, like when we started, all of us, all uh, I would say for the most, all black women can relate to everything that has happened to you in some type of way. And. That's awful, and it's and it's awful. It's yes. it's such a sad it's such a sad thing that I can be anywhere in this country meeting people who share very similar stories, and it's just like it's just it's just really sad. But I am so happy again just to be able to speak openly about it so that people can understand they're not alone. And then I do really believe in allyship, and I do have some incredible allies. I, I just the, the the people that get to come to the cookouts, and <laughs> I, I have several of those in my life actually. And so I'm hoping that allies or people who are embarking upon this journey will will take a listen and realize that these are the things that that we have to go through that are often neglected or not even an afterthought because because our certain identities welcome things that other identities do not. So I do hope that there are some people listening and thinking through application what could be done to ensure that these types of things never happen on their campuses again. Right. So we, I, I, as we wrap up, um, I, we, we do ask each one of our guests some questions. Um, and I'm going to ask you those questions. And so the first question is around music. We have a playlist, mm -hmm. a curated playlist. And okay. we would like to add, absolutely add those songs that just do it for you. What are your jams that help, help you? Because <clears throat> I will say this, this topic of senior leadership is a heavy topic, right? And so... Um, we talked about some really good stuff today. So what is what is the music that you need uh, that we can add to this playlist? So there's this song from a woman named Rihanna J, and it's called 23. And when I tell you that song was my whole entire anthem when I was plotting on quitting my job, 
because I knew I needed to quit after the first semester. <laughs> that became really apparent to me. But she just talked about how she, she wants it all when she's finished and she got to go get it. And just talking about it's just taking, taking you on a journey through what you have to go through in order to get to your, to, to the finish line. And so Rihanna J, 23, like that, I listen to that song every single week, several Is times. Is her a last week. name Snow? Just wait, I just, I it just says, just it's just Rayana J, Rayana J. I don't, I've never heard of Snow, but um, yeah, it's such a really, really good song. And I put that song on and it's just like, it's like just the, the melody comes in and listening to the lyrics and I'm like, that it, it's a whole entire anthem. So that's like my, that's like my go-to, go-to song. So you can add that to your to your um, your curated playlist. Our curated list. Okay, okay. So <laughs> now we want. I want to ask you about books. What are some books that you can recommend to our listeners? Sure. So I definitely have to shout out my friend Minda Hearts and the memo, and it's just the most <laughs> unapologetic piece of literature I have ever consumed. And again, wow. she showed stories from an entirely different field feel that that hurt because it resonates that much but she's just putting it out there and she's already on a bestseller's list she's putting it out there for people to see and also when she was trying to nobody wanted to read nobody was interested mm -hmm. about what was happening with black women but here we are having this podcast it's very evident that we need this this space so i definitely need to recommend Minda hearts the memo it's a really good one Okay. Mm -hmm. So is that the only one? Do you have other recommendations? Because I, I want to, or is that the mm -hmm. one we're going with? Mm -hmm. the, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know, only create some space for Minda right now. <laughs> okay. So, so you touched on it a little bit, but what does this podcast mean to you? This podcast means freedom. It means validation. It mm -hmm. means camaraderie. Yeah. Those are, that's what it means. It means redemption. It means restoration. It means all those things in a big yummy sandwich. Wow. <laughs> but it's, it's all it's all those things that that we it's it's yeah it's it's a combination of all those things equal parts of all those things to let people know that they are not isolated and that we are we we all have these experiences and that you don't have to go through it alone and perhaps maybe by speaking through it in this type of platform perhaps this could instill some change in some much needed spaces that was super dope yeah. and our and our last question is about a woman that you would like to celebrate well i mean minda's a professor so i got I just like right now she's on book tour i gotta just put her out there because that's how we get this done so Minda, Minda, Minda. I'm celebrating Minda. I'm celebrating this beautiful book that she wrote. I'm celebrating the super successful sold out book tour. Check the date, see if you can grab a seat as she teaches you how to secure your own. So I want to celebrate Minda Hart. Okay. All right. Come on. <laughs> so Natalie, we want to thank you for being a part of this podcast, for sharing your voice and your experience to everything that we're doing and we just, I, we thank you for the work that you're doing. Right. Thank you. And thank your you. bravery. Seven yeah. years, single space. Listen. You I, know what? When people say that, it, you know, you're so brave, I would have to respond and say it required far more bravery to show up every day than to do what I'm doing now. 
And that's when I really realized that I made the right decision because right now I'm just out here being as authentic as I want to be whenever I want to be, whereas I had to be an imposter and that's where the true bravery came in. So try to get those things in balance so that we could all uh, know when we need to and not need to be brave. But thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed spilling my higher ed beans and <laughs> <laughs> I hope that I hope that it definitely uh, serves a greater good and, and has some benefits for people who are going unfortunately going to the same thing. So thank you. You're definitely walking in your purpose. Thank you. Thank you for listening to episode 11 of Black Women Voices. We hope you have enjoyed our conversation with Ms. Natalie Gillard. If this is your first time listening, please remember to check out the first 10 episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Be sure to share and rate the shows. Thank you for tuning in.